latest episode. This episode we're back to the standard stories. I'll try and switch back and forth between interesting people and stories for different episodes. So as we go down, it's not just the same thing every single week. Now we do have another DV episode, uh, DVA episode coming out, but we need to get some things to happen. So we've put in a bunch of requests under Freedom of Information to try and get uh, get more info out of the department. Um, but like that takes its time. We can't get that immediately. But lots of people are sending lots of questions about the data breach. So we've then sent those questions onto DVA in the form of Freedom of Information requests so that hopefully we can get that information back and give you guys a much better picture of what's going on. Now, before we get started, here's a tiny sample of some of the really, really short stories that we get, um, just to get into it. We used to have an SOP of emptying our weapons into the air. We would remove the clip, arm the weapon, and fire it into the air. We do this about three to four times after any firing exercise and every day at the end of day. This guy, two whole days after a live fire shoot, does the procedure, and what do you know? A bullet drops on the ground. It had been in his weapon for two days. Let's get started. Okay, so our first episode today is from a Kevin that isn't very smart, along the lines of the intro story and from the same source. So there are two stories about him that go hand in hand. This guy, who through no fault of his own, wasn't very smart. He was so clumsy and frankly idiotic, he should have been medically discharged for an intellectual disability. On shooting practice, we had two signals to do with our feet from the prone shooting position. Left foot up meant your magazine was empty and you were waiting for further orders. But if you put your right foot up, that meant you had an issue, any sort of issue, which meant you would call for an officer in charge of the line. Now, right foot up could mean everything, including weapon malfunction with a live round in the chamber and the trigger pull. Now, Kevin has a live 7.62 round in the chamber with a weapon not firing after the trigger was pressed. But instead of raising his right foot and waiting for assistance while holding the gun, in case it was a delayed action, he stands up with the weapon and then turns it towards the CO at a range of five meters. The CO drops to the ground hands over his head, screaming to turn the weapon towards the targets and hold it there. Now, looking at this, we've all been in a range of some kind of numpty. Um, I know that I have, um, but then again, like thinking back on it, maybe I was a pogue, so maybe I was a bit more exposed to the fuckwits that didn't know what they were doing. Because it was always interesting to see certain people thinking, because they weren't a warfighter, they didn't need to pay attention to weapons drills. The weapon doesn't care if you're an enemy or a friend, whether you're a cook or cavalry, it's gonna fuck your day up every which way. But at least as a truckie, I knew many truckies, QEs, you know, even mechanics and stuff that just their their trade was the primary role they wanted to do in the military. They didn't actually care about the military per se or being in the army or fighting the war. They they were there just to just to get their job done or get the qualifications, experience and skills they needed out of high school to go further. So Although this guy might have been actually an idiot, um, we can't say that for certain because, like, some people just don't, they just don't, they don't army or they don't military properly um, because their heart's not in it. So this guy might be an idiot, but uh, 
But he, he, could, he could have just been, you know, just didn't give a fuck. So let's, let's keep going. My dad told me this story a while ago, so sorry about lack of detail and military terminology. I was not in the military. My dad was deployed to Iraq in 2003 as a satellite communication technician for the Air Force. I believe he was in Kuwait at some airbase. My dad and his buddy were in a tent joking around when a siren went off that usually means they're getting mortared. My dad put on his gas mask, CBRN gear, helmet, M4, and ran out of the tent to their kind of homemade bunker they'd built on the base. Remembering this was early in the war. He described it as a little dugout that had poked out of the surface and had a roof, AC, and a firing slit. He remembers just getting inside the bunker when he heard what sounded like an F-16 shooting overhead and then pieces of debris falling all over the roof of the dugout. He described like it was raining fire. He sat crouched there for a while and the siren eventually stopped. Once he got out of the bunker, he remembers bits of screws and what looked like a big O-ring cut in half laying in the sand. The day after he got a phone call from, I don't know who, but I remember he was very important, and the man on the phone said that the Iraqis had fired a Scud missile at General Stanley A. Crystal's office and that it was maybe 60 yards away from my dad's dugout and the sounds he heard was the Patriot missile system firing two surface-to-air missiles at the Scud last second and getting a lucky shot on it. My dad actually didn't even know there was a Patriot right next to him because it was one of those concrete T-walls just blocking him from seeing it. It was right next to the dugout with another unit. Who knows what would have happened if that Patriot wasn't there. General McChrystal and my dad probably wouldn't be here. Now Going back to that, that's fucking luck. I mean, you hear about these Iron Dome safety systems and that, like, they're really good in, in places like Israel where they, they, they defend against the Palestinian rockets and stuff coming in all the time. And they've been used pretty effectively in Ukraine against the, the Russian incoming stuff. But it's really, really interesting to actually read back and, and go, because when was this? It was 2003. Like, the, the technology, like, you think about 2003 and the technology we had, I was still using dial-up in 2003. Um... Like, you know, but we were able to successfully have uh, systems that were intercepting missiles straight out of the sky and keeping soldiers safe. Now, that's that's pretty fucking cool that we had that back then. And it makes you wonder why why it's still, you know, still one of those things we can't get working fucking indicators on a BMW. But, uh, you know, that's that's life. But these are the stories we love. Like, you can't, you're not making this into a movie. This, this five minutes of this... This might have been the only thing that happened in this bloke's entire deployment. So you're not making this into a move, but it is it is an interesting little two-minute story. So let's keep going on. So years ago, I was in my country's National Guard for 24 months mandatory duty. We don't have an army. Basically, this is the army for it. One day, about a month after basic training, still new to the whole army thing and my assigned base, I was performing guard duty on some ammo storage. The forces that be decided that nobody was getting out of the base that day. So we ended up having a surplus of 20-something personnel. My base needed 37 for duty at night, so that was more than 50% than necessary. And I have, and to have a reason for them being in there, they added them as raiding parties, which was usually a duty performed by an NCO, not a tour soldier. Now, how it was supposed to go, we order whoever is approaching us to stop an ID, as patrol, raid, guard, change, whatever. Yeah, they say a number, I reply with a number, they say a word, all pre-assigned, all done. And they are allowed to approach. You inspect and sign that the inspection was good or not. But with so many extras performing this, plus the regular patrols that checked areas where guards couldn't see, plus the NCO raids, plus an officer raid, I had to perform the stop and ID about 10 to 15 times in the span of two hours, which left me pissed. Now, as a side note, if they don't comply with the order three times, the manual that they gave me said I ordered them to leave another three times with the threat that I open fire. After the third time, if they don't turn around and leave, technically I'm clear to fire. Now while I was clearing a patrol to approach, I see in the distance a raid coming. So I yell at them to stop. They stop for a 
second and then continued, thinking I wasn't talking to them. I yell again, stop an ID. No reply. The third time I yelled stop an ID and added their location so they know I'm actually talking to them. I said two times, turn around or I'll open fire, with no reply. At this point, they were about 100 metres away from me. But with the lighting and knowing everybody, I knew who they were. I wasn't about to shoot someone I knew. Like, they were, do they were doing what they were supposed to be doing and not being a threat. But this third time, I was pissed. So I loaded an empty magazine, despite having live ammo on me. I know that technically being compliant with regulations, I could have unsealed them, but given the situation, I figured it would land me in a lot of trouble. So understanding this, the mag locking into a G3A3 assault rifle makes a very distinct sound, and in the dead silent night at 3am, it was clear from a mile away. Also, to get the weapon ready to fire, you pull back and release the bolt, which makes a very loud noise. I screamed for the last time, turn around, leave, or I'll open fire. Now, he didn't know what I was doing, and I think he was scared to death. He may have needed a change of underwear after that. I saw him drop to the ground, and with a shaky voice scream, it's a raid, it's a raid. And when I went up, well, up to him, he was shaking head to toe. After that, nobody tried to approach me while on guard, patrol, or whatever other duty I, after I said stop. Now, this is funny. Like, I've, I've been in those fake... Uh fake things. I remember personally during my uh, my basic truckie training, we uh, their, their summative assessment for us stopping people on guard duty to the uh, the FOB was they got the MPs to come in lights and sirens and uh, seeing the MPs coming in lights and sirens, we just we just opened the uh, we just opened the gate and just let them in. Um, and that's the thing, like you think okay, the MPs are a pretty safe bet, but uh, turned out that was the summative assessment and the uh, the challenge they'd given us was that the MPs had their car stolen. So I would have loved to have been able to do something like this. This would have been fucking perfect. Let's keep going. Okay, to preface this short story, I did my mandatory-ish military service in the SAF, Swedish Armed Forces, from 2020 to 2021. Yes, I am that young. In Sweden, the structure of military training nowadays differs from the US in the sense that we don't have basic and then separate schools in the MOS of your choice. The SAF places you the recruit in a platoon with which you will spend almost all your service. The platoon is already fitted into a division-sized organization from day one. I did my service in the Lednings Regimentat, which would roughly translate to the Command and Control Regiment. There I trained to be a Radiolink soldier. Radiolink is essentially a system and network in Sweden of fixed antenna towers designed to facilitate quick and secure communication and signals transfer. In our platoon, we used either a truck-drawn 35-meter high mast, or we could mount our stuff on a fixed tower where we would climb up about 45 meters to mount a winch. This story takes place during our initial training for tower use. So there I was, about 1700 in the Swedish autumn. So it's cold and fucking windy. We spent the entire day this far drilling, the climbing, mounting, winching, directing the antenna in the tower and into the ground. I spent most of this time in the tower as I was otherwise trained to drive rather than configure the link equipment. To incentivize us recruits, the sergeant in charge pitted the three groups against each other in a race. So time was of the essence. Me and my partner, let's call him Kevin, were first up the tower and got our winch mounted. We then climbed up, set the height for this session, about 30 meters. As we got there, we secured ourselves to the side of the tower rather than the ladder so the other teams could climb up the ladder. This is normal as we need to let the ground team do their stuff before they can connect the antenna to the winch. After about four minutes the other teams come up and secure themselves as well. Now we're just chilling there waiting. Conversation shifts from being cold as balls to what we're going to eat for, uh, eat next weekend we get. This of course spurs us to describe various pizzas, burgers and our stomach's demands after a few weeks of canteen sustenance. Kevin had just finished describing his dream. Family sized kebab pizza with extra garlic sauce and onions. When a guy in the other team just looks at us all and says I never thought when I started this that I'd be hanging 30 meters high in the fucking cold with a bunch of people as stupid as me talking about pizza. Now at the time we all lost our shit laughing. A few minutes later the ground team had unfucked a winching cable that got tangled so we got back to work. Now this exchange stuck with me. I didn't stay in the army when my 11 months were up. Don't get me wrong, I loved most of it. And this short moment of calm and truly brain dead conversation, several stories off the ground in a lightly moving tower in what had been and continued to be a very hectic month of just repetition and learning before we went to the Royal Palace to do our ceremonial week of duty. Now, that's that's a story that, like, I feel is very relatable. Like, you know, 
And this this is the kind of story I really started the pod for. It's it's you know it's the heartwarming ones with your mates. Those those random circumstances that just have just 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 happen. You know, it's again it's not those stories they make movies about. But you know, it's a it's it seems that mateship like you know Swedish Armed Forces probably probably got a different term than mateship. But you know, it's it's the concept of mateship, the vibe, uh, the Marbo. You know, it transcends nations. Like you've. You've got that. You got that feeling of of you know camaraderie that uh, that just happens because you're just in the most bizarre and ridiculous situations. So you now, and, and the military puts you in things that are not normal. So when you talk to civilians about them, they just don't understand because they've never been there. They've never done something weird or wonderful or strange like that. So yeah, like this is this is the stories I love, and this is the stories that I wanted to share. Now let's get on to a nice big one for this episode. This one has been shared with permission from Colonel Blackhawk. Um, as they said, it has been published elsewhere, and their family is aware of it. They do have another story coming out soon of uh, World War One and uh, and that. So that will be quite an interesting one to read. Um, but well, you know, and I'm looking forward to it. So it's it's really good. Um, my grandfather served in the U.S. Army Air Force from 1943 to 1945. He was assigned to the 752nd Squadron, 458th Bomb group, 8th US Army Air Force, based out of Horsham St. Faith in England. His official title was Ball, gu- Ball Turret Gunner, Ball Garret Tunner, Ball Turret Gunner, though he spent most of his time in the midsection of a B-24J, and he was a 19-year-old sergeant when he arrived in England. Like On his 16th mission, his squadron was assigned to attack a factory outside of Mag- Magdeburg, Germany. One minute before bombs away, he- heavy flak erupted and a burst struck the right wing, setting it on fire. The flak burst took out number 3 engine and damaged number 4, as well as the ailerons and putting a 12-inch hole in the fuselage. Pilot turned the plane back towards friendly territory and the crew prepared to bail out. They threw everything they could off the plane to maximise their glide time as the plane steadily dropped in altitude. Once they crossed the Rhine, they bailed out. My grandfather was the fourth out, biting his tongue from the jolt of the parachute deploying. Looking back up, he saw three more people jump out, but only two chutes deployed. He landed in the woods and met up with some of his crewmates before being captured by the French. As my grandfather told it to me, the French thought we were Germans because of our flight suits. A school teacher noticed the American flag on my suit and told the others who we were. The French helped the crew reunite as well as identify two of the crewmates who died when their parachutes didn't open and they hit the ground. The crew eventually made their way back to England. The next mission was the same target, something that none of them were happy about. The tone of my grandfather's diary changes sharply after this, much darker and depressed than the cheerful 19-year-old who first deployed. The rest of his deployment went without any major incidents and he received an honourable discharge when the war ended. In 2003, while retired and living in Maryland, my grandfather received a letter from France, written in French. The letter came from the mayor of a tiny town where the B-24 crashed, inviting my grandfather to a memorial ceremony dedicated to his crew and the two that did not survive. A local historian had been working for years to track down the crew of the American plane that had gone down so many years ago. My grandfather searched for any other surviving members of the crew to go with him, but only one still alive and was wheelchair bound in Texas. He did find the brother of one of the men who died on the mission, and the family agreed to go to France as well. So in 2005, my grandfather headed to France with his wife and a group of friends. He told my mother, his daughter, that he wasn't going to be a big deal. It was a big deal. Before heading to the town for the ceremony, the party went on a tour of France, including going to Normandy. My grandfather said it brought tears to his eyes. Not the landmark, but the amount of people, including French citizens, that thanked him for his service. He never experienced that level of thanks in the States. Upon arrival at the small hamlet, the local historian introduced my grandfather to the mayor of town, along with American and French military there for the dedication of the monument. A small ceremony took place, with speeches from the local historian, a few citizens, and the brother of a fallen airman, and my grandfather. After the ceremony was a reception and party where he received two amazing gifts, a window from the plane, 
and a little girl's christening dress made from one of the abandoned parachutes. There's so much more I could say about him and his adventures. He left us a lot of historical items, including one of the flight maps he used. A faded cloth map with his scribblings in the margin. We also have his medals. He joked that biting his tongue on the way down wasn't enough to get a purple heart. In 2008, a B-24 landed in Hagerstown, Maryland, where he was living at the time. I went with him to this event and took the window where the flight crew matched it to one of the cockpit windows. I got to see him fly one last time in a B-24. I had to hold back the tears watching him smile as he walked around the plane. He wasn't healthy enough to go far in the plane while in the air, but they made a slow takeoff and circled low over the airport, giving him the feeling of being back one last time. It wasn't until 2005 that he really opened up about his war experience. My mother never knew any of this history, until he started telling me. I believe two things motivated him, his failing health and my love of history. My grandfather donated the window and the dress to the Hagerstown Aviation Museum, as well as sitting for an interview, only one he ever did. He passed away in 2010 from congestive heart failure while I was in school. Words can't describe how much I miss him. He taught me so much and I wish we had more time together. Miss you, granddaddy. Now this, this story is awesome. Um, like it's it's real family history that. Um, and that's just amazing. Um, there's also a uh, I, I can't really say any more. Like that story is so well put together, and uh, thank you for sending that one in. Um, now there is also a website that was provided with the story, um, which I'll pop in the podcast description for the uh, the bomber unit, um, and it's their history website. Um, and you can go see that and read read more stories about the uh, the crews of these planes and the adventures uh, and and escapades of, of, of the crews uh, in in the Second World War. That's you know, um, so I put that in the podcast description because there's not much more I can really say about that story. It's uh, it's just moving, um, especially because he got that last flight in the B-24 because, you know, they just it's just how it is. Um, next one is a bit more back on the funny, though. When i just come out of basic, I went on to vocational training as a signaler. Today, I think they call him comm specialist. One of the platoon commanders, let's just call him Kevin, was a very fair and competent officer with one major defect. He had a terrible memory when it came to the names of things. He could remember what things were called with time and effort. But he needed to squint and frown, and you could practically hear the cogs turning before he was able to get the right term or acronym. In case you think this was a language issue, it wasn't. English was his native tongue. He wasn't dumb or anything, he was just really, really bad with names. In a number of situations, when he used a name without pausing to think hard enough, he would end up causing total confusion. My first experience of this was when he asked me and my buddy to retrieve a spare battery from the radio truck and run back to the exercise area. Being totally new to signals at the time, we assumed radio truck was a technically correct term for some sort of vehicle, and surely someone would point it out to us. But no one knew what the fuck he meant by radio truck. We got chewed out for not listening properly and ended up wasting 15 minutes running up and down the line looking for a mythical truck. Turns out what he meant was a store's unimog. The second time was when he smoked us for having a weapon that wasn't properly clean. The NCO in the armory deformed him when we admittedly turned in dirty weapons for the third time. We were then told he never wanted to hear about the damn semi-automatic the damn semi-automatic weapon again. Later, after much debate back and forth about what semi-automatic weapon he was referring to, Someone ended up determining that he means a squad automatic weapon. But the height of hilarity was when he told our platoon sergeant to get out some wire. Instead of D10 cable, the sort we used for line laying, back in the old days when we were more analogue, the poor platoon sergeant, or rather poor us, ended up carrying actual concertina wire to the exercise and not enough D10 cable. When I discharged from at least the Australian Army, I said on my last day, officers are not gifted with an abundance of practical knowledge in their training. They know how to think of war, plan for war, and get the basics of walking around. They know the theory of war. Other than that, they're fucking retarded. So really, like, you know that when a new officer gets to the unit, you have to educate the lieutenant. Educating lieutenants is practically a part-time job in the units with the rate they turn over. I'll still remember during my own IETs, my own uh, basic, you know, uh, trade training, there was there was one of our uh, one of our corporals, Panda. Um, he was 
he was an interesting fellow. I'll tell some stories about Panda at some point in the future. But he he he, he spoke a bit uh, a bit off. But he was like, "You'll always be educating lieutenants. That's what you do. Educating lieutenants is what you'll learn to do. It's what you're gonna do most of your time. Educating lieutenants." While he was always chuffing chuffing back on like his sixty fifth smoke of the day, that guy could punch durries like Muhammad Ali could punch other other boxers. Like I mean, that was fucking insane. Um, wonder what he's up to now. Anyways, next one. When I was going through basic training for the army, I knew I would meet some dumb people. And I did. But they were your garden variety stupid. The kind of guys you see in movies. Not bright, but good guys that learn nonetheless. Then there was Kevin. We weren't in the same platoon or even the same company, but we stayed in the same barracks. So one day I'm polishing my boots and getting my gear ready for training the next day. When out of nowhere, I'm hit with a horrible smell of feet and corn chips. It was powerful. I had to say something, so I walked through the barracks looking for the source. Eventually I happened on Kevin. Kevin was sitting on his bunk eating a bag of chips, not corn chips, and talking about getting into special forces. Kevin was the kind of fat that you wonder, you know, what even possessed him to do that. His gear was strewn around and he looked like he, we hadn't been in training for three months at that point. Also, chips weren't allowed. So how he got those, I have no idea. It was about that time, I'm guessing, the drill sergeants had detected the odour of what I'm hoping was Kevin's feet too. Suddenly the whole room is a swarm with round hats and screaming. Protocol and a high-ranking officer like a sergeant enters the room. First person to see them yells at ease and everyone stands up straight. Feet shoulder width apart and hands behind your back. I did this, everyone else did this and we did it quick. Kevin did not do this. Kevin decided to stand up at his leisure, still holding the chips and eating them. The drill sergeants then proceed to lay into Kevin, who was visibly nervous and apparently his reflex to being nervous was to continue eating his chips. So here's Kevin getting screamed at while munching away until the drill sergeant that was doing their best to dissect his forehead with their round hat told him to drop the chips. And they start yelling at him to drop and beat his face and do push-ups. Kevin gets down and does 10 or so, then starts to struggle. Meanwhile, we're all still standing there, having to watch this, waiting for our turn. It goes on for another five minutes until finally the drill sergeant ends it and takes the chips. They tell him to get some water in him because they're going to fuck him up in the morning, and then start walking away. They tell us all to carry on, but Kevin. Kevin decides that was the moment to ask for his chips back. The last drill sergeant then turns around and tries one last time to slice Kevin's head open with his hat, while yelling at him from kissing distance. It was ugly. The drill sergeant eventually got the impression that he got his point across, despite the fact that he didn't, and tells Kevin to put away his gear and leaves. Once the drill sergeant was gone, Kevin notices one last chip on the ground, directly next to his smelly foot. So he picks this up and eats. Then he threw all his gear under his pillow, and it wasn't the kind of stuff you can hide under a pillow, and lays down on it, somehow unaffected by the fact that his neck was now a 90 degree angle. By this time, the smell was making my eyes water, so I left. I remember thinking, please God, don't let this kid be in my unit when I get to regular duty. One month later, I arrive at my new duty station and get assigned a barracks room. I'm stepping out to go take a shower when who steps out of the next room across the hall? Kevin, signed to the same company as me. I'd spend the next four years serving alongside this kid, even saving his ass once. More stories of Kevin. I've met people like this. You, you do. You, you occasionally meet, meet characters like this that just... It makes you wonder how they survived childhood, to be honest. Um, like, to just be that blatantly dense... It's, these are the kids that like I mean these are the guys they write safety briefs about so like I, I actually I'm, I'm looking forward to more more stories but uh, as, as I noticed the time's getting on in the episode um, I'm at 27 minutes in the recording by the time I chop this down we could probably get around 25 minutes into this point so let's uh, get to the last story now, being the end of the episode, we're going to talk about the end of someone's career. This happened towards the end of my enlistment. We conscripted in my country. At the time, I was a signaller in the Air Force, and that particular year, 
signalers were a rare commodity. Don't ask me why, but my final year signalers were like diamonds, but units would fight like hell to keep. Anyway, my CO got a call from someone even higher up, insisting that he send one of his much needed signalers to the Air Force School of all places. He was furious and pointed out that he needed to conduct actual exercises and had a major one coming up the very next month. He was not about to use the signal storeman in the field. This was a last resort. But since he got overridden, he decides to play a game of his own and sends me one week out from clearing leave and completing my service to the Air Force School. So I packed my stuff and get there on Monday. They orient me around the camp, they show me my bunk, they familiarise me with the Orbat, routine orders, etc. At the end of the day, about lunchtime, they ask me if I have any questions. I do. I have two weeks leave and I need someone to sign off on it. To which I'm asked, what? You just got here. Why are you taking two weeks? To which I reply, because after that, I'm in the reserves and uh, not coming back. Man, the new CEO went apeshit. Since technically, he got what he asked for. He got a signaler. Just one that would only be around for a week. He took one look at my papers and went, get out of here. To make it worse, this new unit now had to handle all of my out-processing, including my medical return of equipment, discharge papers, which ended up burdening them with extra paperwork. They also had pra no practical use for me given the short time I was there. I did feel a bit bad though, so I contributed in the one way I thought I could. I'm really good at painting miniatures, so I assembled and painted all of the airfix models in the aircraft identification display in headquarters. And that's it today. So by the time I get this trimmed down, it's probably going to come in just under half an hour. But sometimes it's a case of balancing the stories I get in to try and aim for that target time of about 30 minutes. So thanks everyone for sending them in. Sorry if I haven't got to yours yet. I'm going to get to them as soon as possible. Um, but I am always keen for more stories, more adventures, more fun. Um, if you have an interesting person or family member, I'd love to hear about them. Remember, it doesn't have to be the stories they're going to make movies about. It's the, the stories that you tell at Christmas. The stories you tell having a smoke on the back porch. It's the, what was the war like, granddad? You know, those little short stories that you get, that's that's the ones we want to fill this podcast with. So send your stories into the stories about Kevin podcast at gmail.com. Sorry, I'll phrase that. Stories about Kevin podcast at gmail.com and share share the pod with your mates. Let's, let's get them all listening. Get more stories in. Let's get this thing growing. Um, I'm, I'm now starting to see hundreds of listens to every episode every single week like bang monday morning sydney time 06 30 that's when i'm putting this out guys so let's uh let's listen to it on our way to work guys and let's get more stories in let's get that fun happening and as always thanks for listening